it always bothers me when people tell me you can't time the market or when people say that you can't short-term trade, uh, you can't, you know, and you have talk to academics and, and it, it's always an uphill battle. There'll be, there'll be people that will tell you that and it's common, not there's common wisdom, if you will, that, that technicals don't work and things like that. But in the meantime, I personally know you personally know and have personal experience making very good money using these tools of supply and demand. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Brian Shannon is so glad, I'm so glad I should say to see you. <laughs> well, likewise, I am glad, Lewis. You know, I met you for the very first time at a Chartered Market Technicians uh, meeting in New York. I had never, I mean, you're basically neighbors. You live in the same city as I do. Had no idea who you were. My bad, because I've come to find out that you're a very, very talented trader and more importantly, educator. Well, thank you. And um, I was really happy to have you say yes to come talk to me. And uh, I really wanna share some of the things that I've learned from you. And I want you to share with my audience some of the, kind of learning that you've had over the years in trading the markets and yep. you have such a, uh, a, a I, I would call it a varied background in the investment world. I think you can bring a lot to the table for people to understand anybody who's a trader themselves or an investor, because your background really brings a lot into the, um, uh, into the fray. I mean, I guess I should back up a little bit just to tell the audience a little bit about you. You're the founder of alpha trends. Yep. And it's an online swing trading analysis and education community founded in 2010. And you handed me your first book, Technical Analysis of Using Multiple Time Frames. And, but you have a new book out, uh, which I'm really excited about. It's doing very well. It's called uh, Maximum Trading Gains with Anchored VWAP. Yeah. And I will kind of talk a little bit about that. You, you say that, the, that VWAP is the perfect combination of price, time, and volume. And, and I agree with you. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. And uh, your book is doing well. Number one bestseller on Amazon in the investment analysis and strategy category as of uh, yesterday when I looked at it. Yep. Uh, so that's, that's great. And, you know, when I was looking at your background, not only do you mentor and train people, you trade on your own as a successful trader, but early in your career, uh, you had this, you, uh, uh, like a stock brokerage firm type background with uh, Lehman Brothers and Dane Bosworth, and yep. even you're a manager. Can you tell me a little bit about your evolution from a broker to a trader? Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, I you know, and thanks for having me on, Lewis. It's always good to chat with you. Um, uh, I you know respect what you do, and obviously you have a lot of knowledge in the technical area. So I appreciate being on with somebody who can speak the language. Um, so I, you know, I started out as a retail stockbroker in Boston in 1991 after graduating college. Um, that, that was my way into the investment world. I kind of, you know, I was kind of naive, truthfully. I thought that uh, I would be, you know, buying and selling stocks, not a, uh, a telemarketer, basically, is what, <laughs> what it turned out to be. So, you know, at Lehman, I learned how to sell, which was, a, it was just always a great life skill. I think they should teach that in high schools, you know, how to sell, because we're all always selling things. Um, but I moved to Denver in 1993 and uh, worked with Dane Bosworth at downtown. And actually, it's funny because I, I tried, I joined a uh, CMT uh, meeting downtown back way in 93 or 94. I don't know if you were running it back then. I was. You were. And, and, and I, I actually I lobbied my manager, Dane Bosworth, to cover the cost of being a CMT and they wouldn't do it. So I gave up on the CMT. I just kind of, you know, just started doing this brokerage thing, stuck with that for about a year. And then I uh, opened a day trading office. Um, well, I actually went to work. I went to work for myself for a little while and traded for myself. And then opened a day trading office uh, downtown Denver. Um, and that was, you know, right across the street from Union Station. It was great real estate right there on the first uh, first floor. I can't imagine what the cost of it is today. So, yeah. So I opened this day trading office um, because I, you know, I had my Series uh, 7 and 63. Then I got a seven, uh, 24 so I could be the branch manager, you know, office manager. 
Um, and, you know, stuck with that for about a year and then started to work with a company called MarketWise. Mm -hmm. uh, they were based in Broomfield. He kind of acquired our customers and went to work for them. And uh, that, that was really a good career move because it, it gave some more structure to what I was doing. Plus, the guy I did it with was a con man. He actually went to prison for uh, running a, <laughs> a uh, Ponzi scheme after after he stole from me and I fired, you know, we broke, broke that up, but uh, that's a, that's a story for another day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I thought so, we, could, we could talk for a long time about that one, but anyhow. Yeah. So anyways, so, you know, I, I started this office and then went to, you know, uh, market wise mm -hmm. and worked with them for about 10 years and, and uh, you know, created educational material for them, ran their uh, uh, prop desk. So the, you know, the, the guy who was running the prop desk, he brought in about 30 traders and, um, you know, two or three of them were profitable. And, you know, so my boss got, you know, the owner, David, got rid of the manager. And he said, Brian, I want you to run this prop desk and, you know, start teaching them how to make money. So I looked at, you know, 30 traders there and I said, well, you know, Dave, I can't deal with 30 of these guys. He goes, OK, well, you know, fire half of them. I'm like, what? I've never <laughs> fired anyone in my life. Wow. So anyways, we cut it down and, and, you know, we turned it around. Actually, a lot of them became profitable and uh, a couple of them I'm still in touch with this day. Um, but, you know, after MarketWise kind of wound down, I did my own thing, which was to start Alpha Trends. And I started it as a just, you know, on YouTube. It, was, it wasn't even actually YouTube yet. Um, YouTube, um, it, I was uploading to Google videos. And then Google videos, you know, acquired YouTube. And so I've been on YouTube, you know, since the inception of YouTube, basically mm. um, doing technical analysis videos. And about three years after, you know, doing these videos, I was approached by Howard Lindzen's, Lindzen over at StockTwits. And he asked me, hey, do you want to, you know, join up and, you know, offer your service as a subscription product? I think a lot of people could benefit. I was well, sure, let's do that. So I've been running a subs subscription product for the last 15 or so years. Um, and I, you know, cater to swing trading, as you had mentioned in the intro. Um, so that could be anywhere from one day if we get stopped out, it wasn't a swing trade. Uh, up to generally two to three weeks is my preferred time frame. Um, so in 2008, I wrote the book Technical Analysis Using Multiple Timeframes. And this year, I just finished uh, the uh, Maximum Trading Gains Without uh, Anchored View app, as you mentioned. So that's just a start. I'll let you choose where to go from there. <laughs> well, okay. So first of all, let's let's back up a little bit and, and, and talk about how you got into technical work. Because you're working for firms that were primarily fundamental in their like sales pitches and why you did what you did. How in the heck did you go from that fundamental storytelling to more of a quant tech technical strategy? A lot, you know, most oh, people pretty, don't make that jump very quickly. It's pretty interesting the way that evolved, and that's that's a, a good question. But you know, so in high school, I used to go to I, I was interested in the stock markets. I used to go to the local library and read the Cabot Market Letter, oh, which yeah. is still around these days. Yeah. Um, and there was a stock in there that they were talking about that said, we want to buy this stock if it gets above $5 a share. And I read it. I was thinking, that's insane. Why would you want to pay higher? Then you turn the page and they had a chart and you could just see this resistance at five. So I had money saved up. I was a freshman in college, actually, at this time. Uh, I bought a thousand shares of it and it, you know, I, it went up two points in the next three weeks and I got nice. out of it and I said, Boom, done. Um, so <laughs> now, it, you're, it now you're hooked. I, I, you know, started. I, I looked for and found a technical analysis book, and that was Stan Weinstein's Secret for Profiting Bull and Bear Markets, which has a huge influence still to this day on everything I do each and every day in the market. So um, yeah. that's where I really caught the bug, and he wrote that in a, a way that really just made sense. From there, I went to Murphy's book, and then I just devoured every technical analysis book I could. So let's and, let hold on just a second now. Yeah, yeah. I have to honestly, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I've never read any of Stan's work. Oh, well, there's only one. So okay, so I've seen the book, and I've read your book. And uh -huh. I and I and I can see the influence from your book, right? But but it seems so it seems so simple. What are, give me give me 
the most powerful lesson that you've learned from his work, if you can, in a nutshell? Uh, the cyclical flow of money through the markets, the the four stages, just like the stages of the economy. Um, you know, the markets are a discounting mechanism. They anticipate what's going to happen six to months, not nine months down the road. But back to, you know, what you just said, you know, simplicity and that, you know, I just posted that on Twitter last night. Simplicity is the market's greatest disguise. Mm. Everyone's always trying to look for this, you know, complicated formula when it's just supply and demand. <laughs> we want to know what motivates people in certain areas, either fundamentally or technically. So at Lehman Brothers, I got lucky in that I worked for their top producer. Uh, I guess the manager saw something. I was kind of a smart ass when I went in for the interview and he said, Hey, you, you know, you'll do well with this guy. He's our top producer in the office. And his, his name was Michael Collins. And, and he had a strategy that he used where he married the fundamentals with the chart. And he was looking at positive earning surprises. So this was back in 1990, 91, 92. So he would get the investors business daily, uh, you know, daily graphs books, the blue and green ones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he would say, Brian, go cut out these charts and blow them up three times on the photocopier. So I, you know, start paying attention and he would look for companies that reported uh, increase in revenues and better than expected earnings. And they had a good, you know, chart. And I saw him making a lot more money for his clients in that office than other ones who were pitching the, you know, the garbage that Lehman Brothers was pitching. It wasn't all garbage. I shouldn't say that. But, right. they, they, you know, a lot of it was just like, hey, move this stock, whatever type things. Sure. Not necessarily. He was making real money for his clients. So I was really lucky to see that. This is really um, important so what you're saying, though, Brian, because yeah, I mean, you, you came out of the the uh, sell side. And, right. and you learn like how the sausage is made on the sell side, right? Yeah. And, and you, you, you see the public has this impression about what is Merrill Lynch all about? You know, it's, it's and what is Lehman Brothers? You're supposed to know everything, Smith, Barney. And then when you get in, because I have a similar background, right? I worked for Kemper Securities, which used to be Betcher. Right. When you get in, you realize that the name of the game for them is not necessarily making great returns for their clients. The name right. of the game is moving AUM, assets under management, getting uh, commission revenue. At that time, it was more commission revenue. There was more commission then, yeah. And 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 so so that was a secondary consideration. So at but at some point, you must have realized that hey, I'm in this game to make money, not necessarily for clients and for myself, uh, not necessarily just to be a salesperson. You mentioned so, uh, so you must have been motivated in in a different way than some a lot of the guys in the office that were just like, hey, I just want to gross commission a certain amount or something like that i i took really very little pleasure from sales um you know i i got pretty good at it um just because it's you know it's just talking and convincing people of things but i wasn't really always sure that it was you know the best thing for that person but I, it was an opportunity to you know there, there, there's definitely um a conflict of interest you know a lot of times in that you're trying to hit a certain number of commissions per month and you're trying to do better and open new accounts. And you've got a, you know, part of, you know, the sales process isn't just telling a good story, but embellishing a little bit to, to capture that fear, you know, capture the FOMO from someone on the other line saying, you know, I, you're right. I need to own that stock, Brian. Let's buy, you know, 4,000 shares of it at $22 a share. That's great. And I'm just thinking, well, that means this many dollars in commission. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I did, I, I really enjoyed looking at the stocks, you know, figuring them out and just trying to figure, figure the puzzle out. How and did you move to the shorter time frame? Because that's not the time frame they were, they were no, probably promoting to you at that time. No. And I, I, I had a few talks about that. I, I got called into the uh, branch manager's office about, you know, velocity of, of the money. And, you know, they tried to get me to sell bonds and, and real estate products. And I told them I have no interest in doing that. I'm not going to I'm not going to do it. They said, well, you, you rescheduled you for the test. I said, fine, I'm not studying. And I didn't study and I failed. And they said, well, we scheduled you. Make sure you study this time. I said, I'm not going to study. And I failed <laughs> it again. I said, I'm a stock guy. I, and, and, and back then it was like, oh, he's just a stock jockey. I, I took pride in that. Yeah, I like yeah. stocks. That's my thing. I don't want to be 
a an annuity salesman or mutual funds. I don't believe in those. I think we can do better than that. So, you know, I was a little bit, you know, so 1991, I guess I was, uh, you know, 26 years old or something like that. I, I, whatever uh, the math is, but, uh, you know, 20, uh, 27, I guess. Anyways, the point is that it, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't my passion. I didn't enjoy it. I, it, you know, it, that's the way I was in school as well, Lewis. If I didn't enjoy it, I just did enough to get by. I was a C student, mm -hmm. but when I saw a class I liked, I would just get an A because, and I didn't really have to learn too much. It would just come naturally. So it, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting the way I guess I had a stubborn mindset and, and just always knew what I wanted to do and thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. I, you know, I, I, people are putting these roadblocks up. Yeah. So you felt natural just being in the shorter time frame from the get go. It sounds like, like just I, in, in general. Yeah. And in, in the, the main reason for that, I think is that I, to this day, am incredibly risk averse. People mm -hmm. might think, well, you take your trader, you take all these risks. Like, I take way less risk than anyone with a portfolio does. Yes. You know, last year I made money. I wasn't down less than the S&P 500. I made money. And this year I'm trailing a little bit because we got off to this, you know, monster start and I wasn't going to chase it. Now my gains are creeping up as the market has come lower and I I know I'll surpass it and you know it, it comes so to me it's about risk management first. It truly is because I had some early, you know, about two weeks before I started as a full-time trader, I was saving up money, $25,000 to get a leveraged account with generic trading in New York City. And I was trading this stock called Chantel Pharmaceutical. CHTL was the symbol. And I had gotten my account from, you know, $7,000. I was thinking, well, I'm going to be able to be a pro trader, you know, maybe in a year. But I ran my account from $7,000 to like $23,000, $24,000 in about two months. And it was mainly through this stock. And I was trading it really well. I'd sell it on the rallies, buy it, you know, as it started, pull, you know, rallying back up again. And one weekend I held 2,000 shares over, over, uh, over the weekend. And over the weekend, Barron's did a hit piece on it. And it opened seven points lower the next day. So I was Ouch. down $14,000. So I did what any responsible person, and here I am calling myself risk averse. I went and borrowed money off of my credit cards and said, I'm doing this anyway. <laughs> so I took out money on a credit card with a baby at home, a wife who was you know working part-time and uh, a house we had just bought and, and said, I'm going for it. So you know, that loss taught me immediately, I cannot lose big amounts. This is my one shot is the way I saw it. I quit my job at Dane Bosworth. They thought I was insane. And everyone, you know, my dad thought I was insane. Everyone thought it was crazy. Um, but I made it work. I, you know, I was just grinding away, making a couple grand a month at first. And I was young. So, it, you know, I, I made enough to get by. But I couldn't screw up because you know, I, I had no other job. I had really no skills besides, you know, I didn't want to go be a, a stock slinger, you know, broker again. But I, so, I love this. I love this story because it always bothers me when people tell me you can't time the market or when people say that you can't short-term trade, uh, right. you can't, you know, and you have talk to academics and and it, it's always an uphill battle. There'll be there'll be people that will tell you that, and it's common not or it's common wisdom, if you will, that that technicals don't work and things like that. But in the meantime, I personally know, you personally know, and have personal experience making very good money using these tools of supply and demand. And uh, I was just recently talking to Tom Basso, who you're probably familiar with. And uh, he's got a whole chapter in his new book. I was uh, reading his new book that's just now getting ready to come out uh, about timing the market. And he has this wonderful story about why uh, everybody's got that wrong. And 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 so and not only that. So there's two things. One is timing the market. That's right. that's counterintuitive. The second thing about your work that really I I enjoy listening to you talk about is the fact that you're in a shorter term time frame, which is people always say you have to be long term. Well. I think I've told you this before. I've done studies where actually it shows, it shows that the reward risk ratio is actually superior in the shorter ter term timeframes. 
but it, there's transaction costs and other things that you got to deal with, but you must be extremely nimble and you must know what you're doing in risk management. So right. one of the things that I love about what you, you, you do is, and I don't know everything that you do and I want to learn more, but uh, right. is you have this context first. You, you, you start with a context of what is the overall cycle, right? And then from there, how are we going to execute in a time frame that makes sense? And, and right. what tools can I use that are not the mainstream tools, which I think is really important to what you're doing. You're not just buying breakouts too. A lot of times you'll be looking at pullbacks, it appears, and that you're looking for reversals. Right. And, and, and again, I have not seen your, a lot of your work, but I've been playing around with the VWAP since you told me about it, which was, uh, I think it's over five years ago now. Yeah. And I have found it to be very, and first of all, there wasn't a lot of uh, firms out there that actually had it out there. Right. So I, so I, had, to, I had to actually go through and create the date. What's the date? You know, I programmed it in and said, what's the date? Put the date in and then watched it from there. Now Delicious. you can just click on a button right. and we'll get into all this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, so quietly behind the scenes, you and I don't talk very often. I've been watching VWAP for a while, right? And I find it to be extremely powerful. I uh, I actually saw a recent interview with you on IBD. That was a yeah. that was a really good interview, and you demonstrated that quite a bit, so people can understand kind of what what it means. And that kind of leads me to uh, this whole anchored VWAP. Can you just explain in your words what volatile or volume weighted average price is? Why it's important. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I know a lot of people that you you talk to do dollar cost averaging, where they'll take a thousand dollars a month and put it into a mutual fund or whatever, and at the end of the year they want to find out what their dollar cost average is. Well, the dollar cost average is basically their volume weighted average price. So what the volume weighted average price is, it, it was invented in 1988 to create a benchmark uh, to say, here's how well an order was executed. The, the original authors of it defined the volume weighted average price as the price that a naive trader could expect to receive. Because that's, you know, when you adjust all the trades by every single share traded, here's the true mathematical cumulative average price. So it's cumulative from the beginning of the day. And that's the way it typically had been measured. Then I think it was 1993, uh, Dr. Paul Levine, you know, started playing around with it and he, you know, would anchor to different points. He had different names for it and all that sort of thing, but he was truly the pioneer. Um, he died in, I think, 96 or 98. And with it, a lot of his, you know, work kind of just got stuck and, you know, it really didn't go anywhere, which is really surprising. Hmm. Um, so I first started noticing it in 2003 with the software I was using. And I noticed that if you began, you know, from an earnings report that was maybe eight days ago, there was a lot of value to that. And so when, so the volume weighted average price, just the traditional VWAP is the measurement for one day. It's cumulative throughout the day. And the anchored VWAP just you, you choose the start point. You say, I'm going to anchor it to the you know earnings report. I'm going to anchor it to the beginning of the year, anchor it to the Federal Reserve or the most recent high or the most recent low or the highest high um, and get value from that. Because what it tells us really is where are we in relation to that volume weighted average price with current prices? If we're above it, it means the buyers are in control. 100% certainty, we know the buyers are in control. 100% certainty, we know the short sellers on average from the beginning of that measurement are losing money. So it's great to tell us, you know, with, with complete objectivity, who's in control. The subjective part, though, is where you start the anchor from. Yeah. So when That's, you say in control, and I like that term a lot, yeah. buyers in control, sellers in control, and you're hearing more and more people use that verbiage. Um, what you mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is basically that they're at a profit if they're in control. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, it's, you know, the, 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 the price that a naive trader, a long trader could have expected to get during that period of measurement, the, uh, price that a naive, you know, and it's not all of them, of course, but if you take on average, what's the crowd psychology? And that's what we're trying to really determine is, 
you know, the market doesn't care about my opinion and me anchoring it to, you know, where I bought the stock. It's more about the collective memory of the market, where there's shared emotions in the market. Mm. And that's what we're really trying to get to because, you know, emotion, you know, motivates people, you know, for fear of missing out, as we know. And, and there's just a lot of uh, price action based around those memories. We, you know, we look at traditional horizontal support and resistance, and it still has a lot of meaning. But when we throw an anchored VWAP, we get a deeper understanding of why that is there. It's more about, you know, the, the sellers are selling it down to a level where they perceive there will be value and then they stop selling. So there's less supply. The shorts sell it down to a level where they think buyers might step in. So they stop selling short. They start covering. There's less supply and there's more demand. Sideline money comes in and says, hey, that's a place where I think there should be buying. I'm going to start to nibble here. More demand from the sidelines. So it's all about trying to look at it and say, what's the true supply and demand here? Rather than, and there's nothing wrong with heads and shoulders and cups and handles and ascending triangles. But what's more important is to understand the psychology of how those patterns are being formed and what it means. You have to look at a chart and say, how would I feel if I was long? How would I feel if I was short? What about the people who are in the sidelines? What are they waiting for to get to get interested in this chart, in this stock, so that they might take action? That becomes the level of interest. And the level of interest just says, here's where I expect this battle to be fought out between the buyers and sellers. Because the primary trend is higher, I'm expecting it's most likely because a trend once established is more likely to continue than reverse a basic principle of technical analysis. I'm expecting it's more likely to continue. So I'm going to look for evidence that the buyers are gaining control in there. I don't want to buy the pullback. I don't want to buy the touch of a VWAP or a moving average, but I want to look at that shorter term time frame and see evidence that the buyers are gaining control. And that evidence might be, well, it pulled back from 35 down to 31 and the, I anchor a VWAP to that 35 peak. And as long as it's below that, the short term, the sellers are in control. But as soon as it starts battling with that level and the bigger level, now we're saying, okay, it has the potential to resume that more powerful uptrend. So I want to get involved at that onset of the momentum in the short term because the bigger powerful trend is still presumed to be in place. And if I'm wrong, then I set my stop below the most recent relevant low for the time frame I'm involved. Yeah. And that, that is, there's two things that I've noticed about this concept. One is that it, it allows you to see the character of a particular move more deeply what's inside of it. And it's, it's right. not as easy. You, you don't have to visually look at the, the days up and the days down and as much you, you get more information very quickly summarized. The other thing is when you do see the stalling pattern or, or whatever the stepping in that you're expecting, you can anticipate it. First of all, you say maybe this might happen. Right. So you're kind of ready. Yes. Uh, and then and then once it does start happening, then you can watch it very closely at that point. And then you have a very low risk entry point. That's the key. Because yeah. if you're wrong, you can quickly exit out of that if you're a shorter term trader. If you're, if you're a longer term trader or investor, uh, you could use that as a, as a point to add on. You could use, you know, you might have already initiated a position and it will allow you to have some reasonable points that make sense, you know, uh, if you're not a, a shorter term trader. So it's just another tool. And it's not like overbought and oversold and all these other indicators, which are linear in nature. They, you know, they, they have a look back and they go right. back like in a certain amount. That assumes that markets have rhythm. And, uh, and, and yes, they do have rhythm, but rhythm shifts. Right. Uh, I did a whole uh, thing on Real Vision on that to actually show that quantitatively, how rhythms in the market shift and that there is no single time frame that you could use that is going to be reliable ever. Uh, that, so when you're what you have to look at and and uh, and I want to defer back to your thoughts on this is where you put that. How are you going to decide that you're going to actually uh, place your anchor? Uh, the the you, you have a lot of work done on that. The, from the work that I've done, it's mostly related to how much volume there was, what peaks and troughs, and what what kind of bases you're in. Earnings reports are absolutely important. 
Yeah. Um, but but you have a lot more experience in that. So I want to talk a little bit about that part of your thinking. What what is your overall approach when saying, okay, I'm going to anchor here, I'm going to anchor there? What what do you how do you uh, generally that? any you know like anything uh, Lewis did kind of created a supply demand shock, right? So I, I just I you know refer to that as you know maybe a gap. Gaps are great. Was the gap caused by a reaction to an earnings report? So those are often some of the best. Uh, brand new IPO. Everyone has the same measure from the beginning. So our collective memory of price is tied to that first print, uh, unless you got shares on the IPO itself. But in the aftermarket, we all have, it opened at $18.65. So if we measure from that point forward, we know are the buyers or sellers in control from the beginning of this, you know, the birth of this stock. Uh, as you mentioned, peaks and troughs. So uh, just, you know, a week, you know, three weeks ago, uh, the NASDAQ 100 got up to the anchored volume weighted average price from the all-time high, and it stopped dead in its tracks. Today, that same NASDAQ 100, or Friday rather, came down to the year-to-date anchored volume weighted average price. And today we're getting a, you know, 2% bounce, 1.5% bounce from that level. I don't know that it is going to be the low, but I, I knew in advance that was an important level because, you know, portfolio managers look at the beginning of the year and they say, hey, you know, the market was up 12%. Now it's pulling back. Let's try to get involved at the average price that this market has traded at. So they defend that level and they say, here's where we need to buy some because rather than, you know, be the FOMO buyer who chases when it's, you know, two standard deviations above that. I want to buy close to this level and start to nibble and see if, in fact, it turns to support. Um, and so far, it's looking like it, but it's it's always, you know, we only know in hindsight mm -hmm. any of this stuff, right? right. So we, we look at it and say, whether it is an overbought or oversold level, or it's a moving average, or it's an anchored VWAP, we look at them and say, this is a clue that tells me to look. And, and I view fundamentals just the same, actually, mm -hmm. that just because the revenues were up and the earnings were up and people are talking about it, that tells me, OK, it's worth looking into. Now I want to measure that on, on price action. You know, some people look at the P.E. ratio and they use that as their starting point, but they don't buy or they shouldn't buy just because <laughs> of the P.E. ratio. I mean, some sure. people do, but it, it's it's the starting point. And, and rather than just a mathematical formulation, like you said, like with overbought and oversold, we're looking at true supply and demand. It's not subjective. What are people saying they're doing with their money? But it's actual price truth. This is the average price. If the buyers are going to maintain control, they're going to defend it in this area. I'm going to observe that in the shorter term time frame. Buy at the onset of new momentum. And get involved in the P, you know, before the, you know, again, using the stock that ran from, uh, you know, dropped from 36 to 32, there's going to be a, uh, a group, you know, three weeks down the road, I'll buy it at uh, 33 and a half, let's say, as it makes that shorter term higher high. Well, then, you know, four days later, it breaks out to 36.25. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, going to yeah. sell a, some to that. A lot. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of traders make the mistake of doing things the way you know, they'll read books and they'll see, they'll look at these obvious chart patterns and obvious breakouts with a cup and handle or whatever that book that they read. And more seasoned traders that make money are usually already involved with that and, and either trimming there if they're shorter term, or they might be capping out, topping off their position at that time, knowing that they have a higher probability of a pullback on that breakout the following day, yeah. or maybe even that same day. Uh, and, yeah. and, and it depends on the market environment. Like in today's market environment, you have a lot, the follow through has not been as much as we've seen in other environments. And, right. uh, you know, 60, maybe 60, 70% of the time, that's kind of how it is. So when you have those great follow through markets, that 30% of the time when we're just like in the ripping bull, that's when it's easy for everybody. Yeah. But it's in that 60%, 70% of the time when you're trying to make money, uh, if you're a stock trader, you must have a different approach. If you're going to make money, I mean, if you're buying hold and you're 60, 40 stock bond, you're going to get a certain outcome. Maybe it's an okay outcome over the long run. Maybe not. Um, 
Where I see a lot of value in this VWAP is in more of the mean reversion related strategies, but it, it could be used for breakouts. It could be used for mean reversion, it could be used for whatever technique. Absolutely. Uh, but in that shorter term time frame, for me personally, I found it most valuable on the mean reversion trades. Mm -hmm. When everybody is going, uh, you know, it, something happened, it sold off, uh, you know, there was a great earnings report and it the, stalled out with on heavy volume and then the thing falls down after that, right? Because the market's not so hot, not so strong. And, but then it hits that VWAP and the, it has great fundamentals and then the institutions start picking it up. And you Yeah, can, yeah, that, that definitely is happening. That's where you pick it up right there. You don't wait till the, the obvious breakout. Right. You gotta teach some traders to stop, because a lot of new traders coming in, that's what they're doing. They're, they're reading those the, the classic books. Correct me if I'm wrong, that's what I'm, I'm seeing. No, I think you're absolutely right, Lewis, is that people are applying old concepts. The market has gotten a lot more sophisticated. When I started full-time trading, you know, it, it was basically 1993 and breakouts were working. It was simple. You just had to buy as it breaks a new high. It didn't matter if it was up 10% the week before, it just kept going. Nowadays, they're more sophisticated. You have to, you know, there was a, a, a quote about somebody saying, you have to anticipate the anticipators. Mm -hmm. Everything I do and talk about is, you know, so going back to Stan Weinstein in the four stages, when it's in a stage two uptrend, we want to participate on the long side. Stage three distribution, we want to, you know, exit our position. And, and maybe if you're looking to get short, you start to anticipate the decline. And then in the stage four decline, if you're a long only trader, you just avoid it. If you're a short seller, that's where you participate when it goes from stage three to stage four. And you get that analysis of multiple timeframes. It's not just breaking down to a new low below the 200 day moving average on your week, you know, your, your two year chart. It's about, you know, using the timeframes together. So uh, and on the same thing, my favorite types of trades, I, I prefer the long side trade is a stock in an uptrend. And, and as I mentioned, it's, you know, it's in an uptrend on the weekly timeframe. So I know that the the big trend has more chance of, of success, especially if it's a fresh stage two on the weekly. Maybe it's been in existence for two to three months. That's really kind of the sweet spot. And there's just, you know, and, and earnings reports are starting to come out positive and that sort of thing. Um, and as the stock pulls back, you know, gets ahead of itself, it pulls back. And that pullback, when you look at it on a shorter term time frame, well, the high was basically, you know, might have taken a day, day and a half to make that high. On a shorter term time frame, that shows as a stage three distribution. The three day pullback shows as a stage four decline below a shorter term moving average, lower highs and lower lows. Stage one accumulation, it takes a day and a half to three days to go sideways, to, re, to, to uh, you know, absorb the supply, have the new buyers step in and, and create that stronghold there. And then as it just breaks to that higher high in the shorter term time frame, that stage two, where we've been anticipating that breakout and planning our trade in stage one, stage two, as soon as the price tells us to, we participate. Another you know, thing that a lot of people uh, have, have I, I've seen a, a mistake is people say, well, there's, you know, it's, it's up, but it's not up on much volume. But if you understand how volume actually works, Volume expands with the direction of the trend, peaks at the turning point, and pulls back as it diminishes. So if you're mm -hmm. first one there at the onset of stage two on the shorter term time frame, at first it's going to feel lonely until you start to get used to it. You're going to be like, Where's, where is everybody? Yep. Well, the human nature is people start getting excited two, three days later because they're talking about it on television. Why is this stock up 10% in the last three days? Oh, it's breaking out. Here you go. Take some of mine. I bought it down there. And now the volume is coming into it because the big institutions are saying, sell some when I can, not when I have to. I want to sell it to the un uninformed, uneducated, less sophisticated breakout traders. I'm going to sell part of my position. And then it, was, it pulls back over the next week and a half. Let's say I sell 300,000 shares up there. I'm going to buy another 150 on the pullback and support it and help create that stage one accumulation and give other people the confidence that there's still buyers in here. Yeah, uh, that to your point on the volume, you know, Jason Meshnick, 
Yeah, of uh, course. Uh, uh, I did a, so a research thing for him because he created this volume indicator uh, that you might be familiar familiar with, where he's looking at the the volume of the market as a whole. So I did a whole volume uh, uh, quantitative analysis, and that exactly what you said is true, that the actual forward-looking returns don't happen on high volume. They happen on low volume. So uh, you, you really want to have a quiet market that is expanding in volatility in your direction. And that happens generally when the average true ranges, the volatility is expanding, yeah. and the volume is expanding in your direction. But right. when you pick it up is when it's quiet. Yeah. And when, uh, or you would like to, and that's where you could see you have to kind of go to a shorter time frame. And this is one of the things I think is really nice about your work is that you've got this concept of context, multiple time frames. where are we in the cycle, and then drilling, it's like a funnel almost. And, uh, you know, where you're saying, okay, where are we in context? And let's get closer and closer when we get to a, what you call an area of interest. And I yep. want you to expand upon that a little bit more. Then you get really more, uh, I guess, drilling down, I would, I assume. Am yeah, I right about granular. that? It's, it's, it's again, so it's, it's based on, you know, the fundamentals of tactical analysis, you know, that Charles Dow wrote. They, again, mm -hmm. a, a trend once established is more likely to continue in reverse. There are the oceanic tides, there are the minor ripples, and, uh, you know, there, uh, I, I forgot the way he described them, but he described it to the ocean um, and, and saying basically that there's different time frames. So when you have those time frames aligned, which was, you know, multiple time technical analysis using multiple time frames in my first book, um, it's, you know, that's the guiding principle to me is to say, I don't want to buy the dip. Because what if it keeps dipping and dipping and dipping and reverses? And we saw that happen in 2022, mm -hmm. that all these stocks that people thought were, hey, what a great opportunity for me to buy this stock 20% off. What a value here. Well, it's below the declining 20, 50, 100, 150, 200-day moving average. Money is flowing out. Don't buy this. It's not a dip. It's in a downtrend. So I want to avoid those stocks or look for a short opportunity. But again, my preference is long. Uh, that's where I make most of my money. Um, so it it comes down to, again, just saying that anchored VWAP from the beginning of the year, from the earnings report, whatever it is, it's pulled back to that. That's my level of interest. It's not my place to do business necessarily, and it might end up being a place to do business. But I have to look at that and say, now drill down to a shorter term time frame. So I can dial in with my microscope and see really what's happening under the surface. If I wait on a daily chart for this to develop and, you know, say I'm using a candlestick and say, oh, that's a doji. You know, I knew it was a doji forming at yeah. 1030 a.m. by looking inside and watching how that doji formed and what was the VWAP for that day? Did the buyers maintain control or was it? above and below it. If it's backing forth above and below the VWAP for that day, it tells me it's not quite ready yet. There's still a battle down here. The next day, it gaps up, pulls back and tests that first day VWAP and holds and then gets back above that day's VWAP. It's telling me, okay, there's there's perceived value in here. And then, you know, two to three days later, as it flattens out, makes that little higher high that's where I want to get involved. I don't want to buy the dip and I don't want to buy involved in that neutral period. Let the institutions do the dirty work. Mm -hmm. It's my job to jump on as soon as the, the market has told me unequivocally because it's above the anchored VWAP from that high at $36 a share five days ago. And it's holding the VWAP from the low at $29.72 on the pullback it made three days ago. Now it's above that and it's making that higher high. That tells me with 100% certainty, the average short seller is losing money. The mm -hmm. average long is making money. That's in That confirms the bigger trend on the daily timeframe that it's pulled back. Now it's ready to go again. It's, it's undergone that, you know, that, that supply and demand uh, struggle that, that, you know, it's found its equilibrium. And now the buyers can much easier grab control of it again because the trend is more likely to continue than reverse. So one thing that I was thinking about while you're talking is that individual investors have so much of an advantage because they can move very quickly, whereas institutions can't. Right. And um, 
this is a valuable tool for individuals who want to create wealth faster by moving faster and, 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 and compounding their edge more frequently. Uh, it's also a useful tool for institutional investors who have, have a longer-term system that they're working in, framework, and they need to execute the best they possibly can. Right. I know I need to buy $25 million of this stock, and, I, and I'm going to use this type of technique to help me get into that stock. So this is not something that is just for short-term swing traders, in my opinion. No, this is no, not that at all. Be used I mean, for long-term yeah. investors, right? I mean, that's why I was talking about the Nasdaq high in 2021, and, and it was still relevant here on February 25th and the 27th here today. So um, these are, you know, levels that say who's in control from a certain area, and when it runs up quickly to that level, it's more likely it's going to sell off. But if it rallies up, creates a higher low in two weeks and rallies up and bumps up against it again, and then comes down a week later and then blasts through it, it's just the story of supply and demand. The buyers are getting more aggressive because they've made, you know, they made this low, let's say February 27th, and I'm just making this up. Maybe March 15th, there's a higher low. And then on March 22nd, there's a higher low. And it came up to that VWAP from the peak, you know, the first time it took, it, it hit it. And then two weeks later, it hits it again. Then a week later, it hits it again. Well, the higher lows tell us the buyers are getting more aggressive price-wise. They're not waiting for a pullback in the queues to 300, 290. Instead, they're taking control at maybe 295. And then the next test, they take control at 298. Well, they're getting more aggressive. They're getting more impatient. They're saying, I don't think it's going to pull back that deep. Let's go in there and buy as much as we can because we think it's going to break higher and we need to be positioned for that. And the sellers who are there at the anchored VWAP from the all-time high, they start running out of supply. So the buyers are getting more aggressive price-wise and time-wise because it was two, you know, it was three weeks in between the first test, two weeks, then one week. I'm just making it up again. But just to, you know, conceptualize what's happening. What I, what I kind of described there was an ascending triangle. We mm -hmm. have three higher lows and we have a level of resistance. We work through that supply. It's free to run. That's very, very good. Another question I had for you was regarding types of instruments to use. It seems to me like stocks would be the best, you know, instrument, you know, something that's pure. If you go to an overall market or an ETF, you've got a combination of things and it could work on average, but is, is it better? Uh, is it a better tool for instruments that are single, like a single stock or a single instrument versus like a market? I, I mean, I know it, it works, but... Yeah, I, I mean, I use it for both. Um, it, you know, again, I'm, I'm referencing here the NASDAQ 100. Right, but, um, and, but, and, my, my, but my question was, is it more pure and a better tool practically? Because there seems to be a little bit more noise in an overall market and less group. There's group psychology, but the group psychology mm -hmm. is, is not as intense as it is in an individual instrument. Or is that false? You, you know, it's. I, I'm not sure I can give 100% objective answer here because my preference, I'm a stock trader, first and foremost. I do trade the ETFs in particular, you know, last year when we're in a bear market, it helps mitigate the single stock risk. Um, and I would trade those a lot more aggressively, but I prefer individual stocks. Mm -hmm. um, to me, they do trade cleaner, you know, is, is kind of what you're talking about here than the indices. You don't have as many factors uh, that, that can go against it, you know, uh, Fed statements. I mean, stocks are going to trade, the good ones are going to trade on their own merits. They're going to buck the trend of the overall market. However, if the market is in a decline and I have a stock I like on the long side, I'm going to use that information to say, maybe be less aggressive in terms of my share size and how much risk I put out there. My tolerance, you know, I, I'm still not ready to commit you know, fully to stocks in this market environment that we're in here at late February, because we just still have too many cross currents. The market is maybe in a stage one accumulation. And I say, maybe, I, I don't know. We could just, you know, fall apart from here. We only know it was stage one when it breaks to stage two and it holds on. Otherwise, you know, it breaks out and then it fails. What well, was a failed stage one, you know, stage two breakout. 
it's, that's why it's, you know, the cornerstone to the success is always risk management. Mm-hmm. We can have our assumptions, but, but if we stay with those assumptions and think we know what the market's going to do, this is how I've had all my biggest losers in my career is holding on to the market, you know, to the stock and saying, well, the market's wrong on this one. I know I've got it. I even read the, you know, the, the 10 Q. <laughs> yeah, that's going to help. I've never done that actually. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's a that's a little clue. Sometimes reading the 10K will not help you. Um, no, no. If you're reading the 10Q, I think you're looking for something to justify your big losses. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, that's, I have so many different uh, things going through my head right now about about VWAP. I, I was thinking about the systematic traders that I know, and like, what would they do with this? Uh, with this concept. Uh, you could, uh, if you were, let's just pretend you were not a discretionary trader right now. Mm -hmm. What would be an approach that you would take as a quant trader to create the criteria to anchor to a date? In other words, would it be the above average volume over the last three days? Uh, Would it be uh, a a peak that has a strength of 3% or, you know, something like that? You know, there's so many conceivable things you could do with this. It's like, it's crazy. No, it absolutely is. I mean, even just to, you know, just go backwards for a second. I mean, if you think about, you know, I'm talking about a trend trading tool, but you also have to remember that there's value players and a value player looks at it and goes, hey, it's below the year to date VWAP. I'm doing great. I'm buying at a discount. This is what I want. Whereas the growth manager says, oh, shoot, it's below that. Is this thing failing? What's going on? Do we have to dump our position? So, and, and there's longs and there's shorts and there's, you know, scalpers and there's longer term holders. I, um, you know, I brought up the example of Oxy today, you know, Warren Buffett's holding that and it's finding buyers at the low, the December of 2021 low, uh, the anchored VWAP from there. I think it's probably going to shake out. And if it's, if they're really supporting it, then it's going to go back up through there. I'm not answering your question though. So my point okay. would be, uh, Lewis, I, I would look at, you know, key events, earnings reports, and I would say, mm-hmm. okay, typically after an earnings report, it might run two to three days, but then it's going to pull back. And a lot of times it'll pull back under the VWAP and you'll have about a week and a half of just kind of a battle back and forth. And then as it gets above the volume weighted average price on day eight or something, that's where to me, okay, we've had the shakeout. We got out the nervous Nellies and the short sellers got loaded, but the buyers are back in control. Now here's where I want to really load into this thing. I I would do something like that. I would measure from uh, a Federal Reserve announcement always. Um, I I always want to look at, um, you know, so depending on the time frame, I would look at the highs and lows. So let's let's say I was scalping the E-mini futures. I would say, you know, I want to know the high, uh, the most recent high, but we've pulled back at least a quarter of a percentage point. Um, and if I was to take that into a daily time frame, I might want to say, I want to know a stock that made a high within the last 20 days, and we've pulled back at least 4% from there, but it's holding above the volume weighted average price anchored to the low of the last 30 days. So it's now pinching between those and I would want to identify those. So those are, you know, you can, again, you could go crazy with this thing. There's, and, there's some things you can do. Yeah. It, it pro- I promise you it's going to get done. So oh, absolutely. Uh, and the, I, the squeeze, I you says a squeeze. I hadn't thought of it as squeeze, but I, the squeeze is like the thing. I love it. The squeeze. You've got a basing pattern. You've got the high Come, you know, you got, if we're talking about the same thing, you've got it off of a high coming down and you've got it yep. off the low and it kind of converges and you can and get some ideas about where things are. I, I, that, that, that has been something I've been doing for a while. The, um, the in fact, I mentioned that. Pinch. What's it's, that? I call it in the book. There's a chapter about it in the book, the anchored volume weighted average price pinch. So the energy compresses and it pin, they pinch together and the momentum, you know, just, it gets compressed and when it comes out of there, it comes shooting out a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I mentioned uh, that scenario in, um, well, it was a longer term scenario on that stock charts when I was, I uh, mentioned that a lot because I want people to see the, the VWAP. 
And I, I had mentioned that because I guess stock charts put it on their, their platform. They did now. about two years ago. Yeah. You said that there's a bunch of uh, software programs or there's a handful of software programs that now allow They're for all this. rolling over one after another. They're all adding it. I think it was uh, eSignal maybe just added it like in the last two weeks. You've got TC2000. You've got... Uh, uh, Trend Spider, Trading View is a you know popular one. You can do you can do a lot with their free version as well over at Trading View. Um, you've got you get Market Smith to do it. Market Smith, I've been talking to them. They it's <laughs> you know they're they're still digesting being absorbed by Dow Jones and company, but they're they're working. They're going they're going to revamp their charts. Yeah, well they 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 do have, they have a good product. Uh, Absolutely, I on, on the fundamental side. All yeah. of those that you mentioned have good products. Going back just for a minute, though, Lewis, what that pinch represents is kind of what we were talking about. So if we have that low from 30 days ago and the stock had a significant rally and it made that peak eight days ago, well, we don't know as a peak eight days, you know, on that day it made it. But after a day and a half, as it begins to pull back, we say that looks like a significant high. I'm going to put an anchored VWAP on that and see how it starts to flow. And then what I'd really like to see happen is maybe a nice shakeout down to that anchor view app from 30 days ago, touch that, bounce back up, and see, again, that compression in between the two view apps. And because we've got the longer term trend is still clearly higher. So the trend once established is more likely to continue higher than it is to, to fail. So we look at that pullback and we say, from that highest point, I know there's short sellers in there and they're feeling pretty cocky. And there's longs who are buying the dip and they're starting to feel doubt. What would make them feel better about that is if it gets back above the average price from that peak. What would make the shorts feel like, oh boy, maybe I messed up here, is if it got back above the VWAP from that peak eight days ago. Now, both of those are heading higher and the buyers are in control from the low and the high at that point. That's the lowest risk place to enter mm. unless it rallied, you know, three points to get there in a day. Then you've got to expect maybe go down to your one day chart and look for it to pull back below the VWAP, hit the two day VWAP. And, you know, you can go on. And, and I wrote about that. There's a chapter about multiple time for, uh, day VWAPs uh, for shorter term traders as well. There's a lot of nuances that can be used with this tool. It's a very versatile tool. Uh, it could be used in a lot of different ways. And I, I think one of the things that I enjoy about it is it's really good for people who are more discretionary in some ways. Um, and that leads me to a question about strategy. So in your trading. So when you're trading, you basically, you're taking smaller uh time frame positions but since you have less risk you could take somewhat of bigger positions if you're yeah. in in the mood for that uh and your reward risk ratio can be higher than two to one it could be five to one ten to one it could be uh much bigger um uh but you can if you have one trade that goes against you especially in stocks uh you can wipe out a lot of trades very quickly in in in, in swing trading type strategies what is your kind of the best way that you find to mitigate that problem in individual stocks where you can have unexpected events that happen in the middle of the day, even though you've done all your homework? The absolute best thing that I've incorporated over the last several years, the last 10 years really, is as you mentioned, I can get a bigger position. And, and I like to, when, when I, I, you know, part of my, what I'm really good at is the entry. Uh, because I'm buying actually at the point where the buyers take control. And it just happens to be where the momentum often is defended and continues. So I like to get in heavy, as you mentioned, take an uncomfortably large position. But I quickly, you know, when the stock starts moving in my favor, I'll sell some a daily R2, which a lot of people may not know what that is, but that's fine. But it's it's just a, you know, a mathematical formula. And I think, you know, 86% of a daily range is contained within S2 on the downside and R2 on the upside, something, some statistic like that. So, and, and institutions use those as well. So I almost always sell a third of my position. I, I might, let's say I buy a stock at 2250 and R2 is 2305. 
I'll sell a third there. Even though I look at the chart and say, this thing could go to 30, I will always sell there. And what I've done is, you know, taken, let's say I, uh, I bought it at 22.50, let's say I sell uh, some at 23.10, that's 60 cents. So what I've done is taking 60 cents off, I've lowered my cost basis on the two thirds position, basically. So I'm reducing that risk. And ideally, if it's run that far, I might be able to raise my stop up on the balance a little bit to a point where if I get stopped out of there, considering the 60 cents I took on the first third, I might even come out of break even. As the stock either reverses and I get stopped out and take a small loss, or if from the very beginning, if I take that large size and it's just kind of sits there for an hour, two hours, I'll think it's supposed to go, but it's mm -hmm. not. So I might sell half of it and then watch it really carefully um, and not really honor my stop, but get out ahead of the stop because the momentum I was expecting, you know, there, there's the time consideration as well as the price consideration. And if it's not moving when it's supposed to, it might not move at all, or it might be a trap. So I don't want to get stuck there. For the balance, for the two thirds, assuming that I have that first third off, what I do is I look at the definition of trend, usually on a 15 minute time frame. So if it runs from 22.50 to 26.40 and it pulls back to 25.80, then it runs up to 27.05, I'll put my stop under that low at 26.40. So I'll put it 26.38. And as it pulls back and makes another higher low, I'll raise my stop under that. And then if it breaks out, at 28, I'll sell another third and I'll keep that final third and I'll keep that third in play as long as the definition of trend is valid. I'm not looking at price targets so much and saying, well, I need it to get to 31 and then I'll sell it. But as long as it's making higher highs and higher lows for the time frame I'm engaged, I'm a trend trader. So why would I hold it if it makes a lower low? That's you know, that's just dumb. It's the definition of trend isn't there anymore. So that, that's how I ideally like to, you know, manage a position for a swing trade. Okay. Yeah. And that, that concept can be used for longer term timeframes too. So absolutely, it, maybe you're, maybe you take a little bit more off at one times your risk. Uh, you're using S1 and S2, which is a different thing. It's based off open, high, low, close data. Right. I haven't, boy, I hadn't heard that in a while. I remember, tr I remember trading a bunch of uh, futures or testing a bunch of futures programs off of those, uh, that information. Uh, there was a system called R Breaker that used, I don't know if you remember R Breaker. Um, yeah, they call them the floor trader pivots. It's an old formula that floor traders used to use. And, you know, and, and like a lot of technical analysis, Lewis, the value is that enough people believe that they are a thing. So they will program their, their computers to say, hey, it hit daily R2 today here. Let's sell part of our position because 86% of the time the stock is contained. I think it's actually 76. There, there's actual good. A lot, of, a lot of study has been done around these. 76% mm -hmm. of the time, that's the range for the day. So I look at it and say, well, you know, the odds favor that this is close to the high for the day. Or if I really like the stock and it's moving strong, then I switch to, okay, it's a daily R2. That's a level of interest. I don't have to sell here, but I'll look at a two-minute chart. And as long as it's making higher lows on successive two-minute bars, I will hold it until it breaks the two-minute low. So you know, if there, so that, that might be a little complex to describe here without seeing the chart. Mm -hmm. Let's say the range for a two-minute bar was... 2610 to 2620 and then the next so so as the next two minute period opens my stop will go at 2608 the next period 2618 is the low and 2632 is the high it opens a new range so i'll set my stop two pennies below that 2618 putting my stop at 2616 so if you've got this stock that's just shooting up on momentum, you, 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 you're not interested in looking at the news to figure out why it doesn't matter, but just trying to maximize that initial little rally that most likely will fail, that's, you know, that's an alternative exit. So it actually reminds me of the little, the picture behind you. Right. That picture behind you is some people will think about the Fibonacci ratio with that picture. Yeah, absolutely. 
And um, so markets are fractal, which means that what you're talking about in your time frame, not everybody's going to want to sit in front of a computer, you know, all day doing that, right? But the concepts that he that you're talking about can be applied for traders with a longer term time frame because markets are fractal. And um, I just wanted to bring that up because I know some of the people that may be watching this are like, like hell, I'm going to be sitting in front of a two minute chart, right? <laughs> but but it. It's important. Yeah. The concept of what you're saying is very important for a trader. It's like, yeah, uh, you know, and basically you're almost doing two uh, two styles because when you're taking some of that off, you're mean. You're basically acting like a mean reversion trader, you know, because you're taking some totally. of that off like a mean reversion trader would. Yeah, and then you're acting like a. T so you're basically doing uh, two multiple style of trading in a single trade, uh, and then you're also uh, giving yourself multiple time frames. So which you know. Probably the best traders I know do that. Almost all of them do that. They trade yeah, and, around a position. You know, you when don't you say two different styles. In a, in a way, it is. But and, and here's the key: is that it's it's my style, and everyone yeah. will look at you, you know seriously. And I'm, yes, I'm not saying that it, it, no one else does it this way. I'm just saying that everyone has to say what is my time frame, what is my style. I went, you know, I I did a about a page of you know the fractal nature, and then I must have mentioned in the book. Reminder, this same concept applies to every single time frame. It is no different because of that fractal nature. I must have reminded the readers of that 20 times in there mm. because I would go on a chart with a shorter term time frame and I think, okay, well, you know, some people are going to lose interest here. I have to remind them just because we're using this time frame doesn't mean it's not relevant on a larger term time frame. And I put a lot of longer term charts in there as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's great. I appreciate your time. You spent a, a good amount of time with us, and I appreciate all of the wisdom that you've, you know, bringing to the table here. And um, thank you for bringing the VWAP up to the forefront, which people have not been able, you know, kind of was sleepy for for a lot of traders, and now it seems to be gaining more momentum to others. Yeah, big time. Yeah, you yeah. should hold up your book. I don't. Have I was looking book. for a copy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the only one I have here is so I have a bunch of them in my office. And, and I don't want to get confused. So I wrote desk copy. So I don't get confused in anyway. So that's it. Yeah. So you can get it on Amazon. And uh, are, are you offering any other place other than Amazon? Or is that where you like to send people? It's on uh, it's on Google Play Books if you want an ebook. It's also on Barnes and Noble as an ebook. Okay. So one last thing before we head out. Um, is there any project that you're working on right now that you're excited about that you want to share with anybody? Not that I want to share, but I, I've got a really good project I'm working on. Yeah. Okay. It, it's great having this one out of the way. And I thought I was going to relax for a while and, uh, you know, just kind of ride that wave a little bit, but I, I've got some good stuff in the, in the, in the works, Lewis. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, I highly recommend picking up the book. Check out Brian's stuff at alphatrends.net. Brian, thank you so much. Good thank stuff. Thank you, Lewis. Pleasure. Talk to you soon. Okay, you got it. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.